Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis from Elsevier, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the pandemic and beyond. Hi, I'm Shri Today's Raise the Line guest is right up our alley at Osmosis, given his interest in using digital technology and artificial intelligence to improve medical education. Dr. Adam Rodman pursues that goal as co-director of the Innovations in Media and Education Delivery, or IMED, initiative at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, as well as being co-director of the digital education track of the internal medicine residency there. And in another similarity, Dr. Rodman also hosts the Bedside Rounds podcast, which is wonderful, which he produces in partnership with the American College of Physicians. And we were first put in touch by our mutual friend, Scott Carney, who we had on the Raise Line podcast, and both of us are fans of the books he's written. Adam, it's, it's a real pleasure to have you on. Thanks for taking the time to join us. I don't know that I could ever possibly follow Scott, but I will try. <laughs> well, so, you know, we always like to ask our guests to, in their own words, tell us what first got them interested in medicine and then in your case, internal medicine. Yeah, no, that's a that's a wonderful question. And it's a difficult question to answer because we always have a tendency to to look back and tell stories about ourselves that may or may not have been true. I actually, like you, I am a, what was called or still is called a non-traditional applicant to medical school. I worked for an economic policy think tank after, I was going to say residency, after undergrad, actually for almost three years and doing like microfinance stuff. This is this is when micro lending was really popular. And my intent had always been to actually go to grad school and get a PhD. And I just hated, hated sitting at a computer and analyzing data all day and not talking to anybody that I made the kind of crazy decision to go to medical school. And I took I did not have all the prerequisites and I didn't know that I was very stupid. I didn't know that post-bac programs existed. So I just took organic chemistry in the labs while I was working full time. It was a, I, if anyone is listening, I highly recommend going against that. And then as for internal medicine, and I'm still a general internist to this day, I don't even, I work in the clinic and I work as, as a hospitalist. So I work everywhere. I could never make up my mind. I liked everything and I could never make up my mind about what I wanted to do. And I guess I still haven't. Internal medicine was a natural fit. You're like, ah, I'll wait and see what I like. And now over a decade later, here I am, general internist. Yeah, no, I love that. I mean, lots of lots of shared similarities. I think in being non-traditional. So, when what at what age were you when you started med school and then and then, then finished? Oh, seven. I, it's not that non. I think that's pretty normal these days. Yeah, I think I think so. And we had Lisa Sanders on the podcast, who you may know from Yale, and she started after a career in TV journalism at thirty-seven at Yale. And you know, I've had when I started med school the first time around, I had a classmate who was forty-one, who was like an immigrant electrician for many years, and then wound up going. So I I, I like this new. It seems to be normalized stories like yours and mine and others. Well, it's a variety of experience. I think bringing in a variety of experiences outside of the strict confines of medicine is good for the field. Moving into kind of the work with IMED, tell us about kind of how, what got you interested in academic medicine, medical education, and then ultimately leading this or co-directing IMED. I've always questioned why we do things and kind of the big why, like why do different medical practices exist? And I actually, when I was a resident, I found as an intern, I found that the why part of my curiosity wasn't really being scratched very much. I was mostly writing notes and being told to do things, even when I thought they were really stupid and didn't have much justification. And one of the things that really got me through my intern years is a podcast. This is a long time ago. The 2013 medical podcasts were not really a thing yet, but I became obsessed with Radiolab. Well, I was already obsessed with Radiolab, but this is when Jad Abumrad and Robert Kurowicz, it's Lulu Miller and Latif Nasser, who are also amazing, are the hosts now. But back then it was Jad and Robert. And they kind of had this blend of, first of all, storytelling, but a blend of very real science and its connections to the larger humanity. 
that showed me or showed me a way forward with science that or medicine that it didn't just have to be rote, doing the same things, doing as you were told, tradition being handed down. And those were my inspirations, actually, when I was a second year resident to start my own podcast and to think about digital education. It was not called digital education. Actually, back then, the, the term foam, foam is still used, but foam was just bubbling up free open access medical education. But this idea that medical education could be a, well, a asynchronous, but also decentralized and away from the sort of traditional top down hierarchies. And again, this is I wasn't coherently thinking about this as a story. I'm telling myself now that I, you know, my hair is gray. I'm getting old. But th that's what I was clawing towards. And then when I started Bedside Rounds, I really started it for myself, not as part of a grand plan to explore these ideas. And as as I transitioned, I actually did a fellowship in, in global health, worked in Botswana, came back, worked in MedEd there, and then came back to the United States. I started to realize that some of these inchoate like, longings that I'd had for a medical education that was you know, more democratic, more decentralized, that took in different perspectives and was actually like effective at, at calling bullshit effectively, right? Like things we do for no reason saying, oh, some of these things we're doing are the way we think don't make sense. These are just tradition. And I, I came to realize the importance and power of, of digital education. I should say that is, that's what osmosis is also, right? Osmosis is, again, one of these very early, I actually read a, a paper you wrote that was in academic medicine about the global reach of osmosis. That was, that was pretty in, inspiring, but showing the power that these digital platforms and digital education had. So a lot, me and Treya Trivedi actually started IMED in 2019, I think maybe 2019, 2020, the pandemic makes my my brain fuzzy, as, as a research organization and an advocacy organization to study and advocate for and train residents and faculty members in digital education. And, you know, as all of this is happening, as as just with the work that you've been doing, digital education has taken over. It doesn't even make sense to speak of it as separate from medical education anymore. If in some of our own research and, and others research, that it is the it is the way that people learn now. It's the way that our residents learn. If you look at emergency medicine attendings and APPs, it is the dominant way that they learn. So digital education is now synonymous with medical education. We were talking about this a little earlier. What's really exciting in and scary in medical education right now is that we're seeing a, a huge, well, artificial intelligence, large language models enter the scene as a, I will definitely be a disruption to medical education. And I know our medical students are already using it. And I think this is just as digital education took, you know, over a decade, and I won't even say it's mainstream, but a decade to develop, we're seeing these changes happening very rapidly in medical education, much faster than say, you know, podcasts or YouTube videos for medical education. So it's been a been a really exciting and whirlwind time to be a medical educator. Yeah, no, totally. And I actually didn't know about the global health connection with Botswana, which is another thing we should Actually, let's dive into that a bit. We'll definitely have more time to talk about AI and LLMs. That's one of the main reasons I reached out to, to get you on the podcast recently is I was actually just in Rwanda and Tanzania back in oh, yeah. February, visiting a school that we worked with there, the University of Global, we, we, we work with University of Global Health Equity. And personally, you may know from my background, I was born in Namibia. So Sub-Saharan Africa is a very, very near and dear to my heart. And part of the promise for osmosis and reason we developed it was, you know, the vision is to educate a billion people by 2025. And that includes people who traditionally would not have access to 
medical education because they can't get to the lecture halls at you know in Baltimore or, or Boston, or they can't afford the books. But because the marginal cost of delivering an online video, especially on a platform like YouTube, thank you Google for having all of our hosting costs taken care of, you know, is so low that you can get you can get these resources to as many people as possible. You can crowdsource, you can learn how they do it. You know, frankly, a Botswana med student, I think, is much better at treating, you know, certain tropical diseases than any US med student could ever be just because they're they're so close to those issues. So tell us a bit more about the global health aspect and maybe are you still doing anything in global health or? Well, research wise, no, but I don't work in Botswana anymore. Yeah, I, so this will be a plug for any anyone applying internal medicine. Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center has long had a partnership with Scottish Livingstone Hospital and the University of Botswana via the Boston Harvard partnership. So a lot of HIV AIDS research and oh my goodness, for seven, eight, it might even be a decade now, we've been having an exchange. We send our residents to, to Botswana and I was one of the faculty members. So I was a fellow, but I was the internal medicine attending at Scottish Livingstone Hospital. And Botswana recently, and I should it's been about a decade now, but they launched their own internship training program. In the past, they had relied on neighboring countries and European countries for their in for their training, but now they have their own internship program. So it was a really exciting experience a humbling experience from like the very beginning, thinking about what an internship curriculum looks like and what evaluation looks like in, in a country like Botswana and building that from the ground up. I like you. So the reason, one of the th reasons I'm passionate about digital education is the opportunity to, as you say, educatability, but, but to widely make a lot of this didactics training that has been kept in ivory towers or really siloed away available across the world and some a lot some of my research now is on the difficulties like you can't just say it, it, you know you need to engage with local partners you need to bring in local expertise it's a lot harder than just saying that and the opportunity is still there and it's partially it partially realized and i think there's a lot of opportunities to improve global me medical education going forward yeah, no, absolutely. Very cool. You, somebody, I, I don't know, you may know him already, but doc, Dr. Sean Tackett, he's, I, I'll make this introduction later. He's, we're working on an AI grant for Hopkins. Uh, recently, he got an award from the Provost Office, but he also has done a lot of work in, inter, he's GIM, General Internal Medicine at Bayview Hospital at Hopkins, does a lot of international medical education work too. So anyways, I'll make that connection later. Well, thank you. This is very nice to do on air. <laughs> <laughs> No, I was just on the call with him earlier today about the grant. So before we go into AI again, I, let me just pull on the bedside rounds. The great podcast. You you, have, you cover such interesting topics, such a diverse group of topics in the history of medicine. How do you choose? You know, maybe tell our audience who may not be familiar with it, kind of how it's you know what what you've been covering, how you choose topics, what the goal is of bedside rounds, etc. Yeah, I'd say the goal it's it's I guess it's explicitly didactic. It, it is a storytelling podcast in the in the style of Radiolab, but the goal explicitly is to explain how modern medicine became the way that it is and focusing a lot on on thought, on epistemology, on, on what it what it means to think and what it means to be a doctor. Lately I've been doing a series and as you can see, the answer of how do I choose things it's what intersects with my professional life. I've been doing a lot of things on the history of diagnosis and when I say that I mean diagnosis this as an idea. What does it mean to make a diagnosis? How has our conception of diagnosis changed over time? And it's changed a ton. 
And how does it continue to change? Which has led into a lot of topics that are related to a lot of things that matter a lot to us, like the structure of electronic health records, how we interview our patients, the, the relationship between doctors and patients. But really for the purpose of what's going on now, it's also led into a lot of clinical decision support, the history of that, and artificial intelligence. Though as a history podcast, I think the furthest that I've, the closest that I've ever gotten to like the present is 1979. So still, uh, yeah firmly based in, in history. So in the past. Yeah, no, I could I definitely listen to the podcast. I can tell why you and Scott Carney are friends, just kind of put, you know, take just being super motivated by your curiosity and finding what others would consider super esoteric, but finding, you know, really interesting threads to pull on. Yeah, esoteric is a good word. <laughs> but, but, but interest, like insightful and interesting. And what's like a favorite episode that you want to share with our, our you know, something that you enjoy? Oh, that's such a good question. So an older episode that I really, really enjoy is it's called episode 40. I made this years ago, like five years ago, The Cursed, episode 43. So it is a, a famous story about Charles II of Spain, who was famously like more inbred than like than the, the spawn of two siblings. And he died very old at a very young age. And his autopsy famously showed, and it's just called, quote, a heart the size of a peppercorn, a head full of water and a bloodless body. What the episode does not explain what those pathophysiological findings are. But what it does is it looks at like Michel Foucault and this idea of the clinical gaze and how our conceptions of where disease lives in the body affects what we see and how we approach our patients. It's it's an older episode, but it's a, it's a really fun anecdote. And it gets into like Foucault and the birth of the clinic it was very important in a, in a period of, of medical history. So it really gets into some of these meta historiographic trends from the 60s and 70s and 80s in a way that I think is fun. No, it sounds like a lot of fun. I definitely want to go you know, go back and look at episode 43 and go back in the archives. You know, history of medicine wise, one of my favorite classes in undergrad that you may appreciate because you're in Boston was a history of medicine class. I went to my, th my paper was on the assassination of a of Garfield, James yeah, Garfield, yeah, yeah. and the bullet was lodged in his spinal cord. And there were all these great physicists, including Alexander Graham Bell, who were called in to see if they could detect where the bullet was because they couldn't find the bullet. And so there were actually early versions of devices they had created that were still in Countway Medical Library. And it was kind of cool to like, you know, actually touch the device that was used on a president to see where the bullet was. Yeah, he used like an inductive machine, effectively a metal detector and arguably the first medical imaging ever, ever done in history. It's quite remarkable. Totally. Yeah. So you, you know, it sounds esoteric, but it's like very cool when you actually dive in. And recently when I was on my London trip, I visited the University of Edinburgh, where I had no idea there was so much medical history out of Scotland in particular. Oh, yeah. Edinburgh is, is one of those like centers of medical history in the 19th century. Yeah. I mean, you know, Arthur Conan Doyle went there and he based Sherlock Holmes on his professor, James, I think it was James Bell. Or one of these great physicians who, you know, could could just look at somebody and have like an intuition around what what they do. And, you know, can just think about Sherlock Holmes, uh, another physician. So <laughs> anyways, we can take the rest of this show talking about medical history and these interesting things. But let's go into AI. So most recently, I, I really enjoyed reading your perspective in the New England Journal of Medicine, which published early August, AI and Medical Education, a 21st Century Pandora's Box. And our mutual connection, Eric Topol, highlighted this and spoke very highly of, of your, your perspective on it on LinkedIn. So I wanted to be sure to have you on. You know, for, for our audience who has not read it yet, who may not have read it yet, you know, what are some of the things you're thinking that, that, that are most, you know, either keep you up at night out of a 
out of either being fearful or being really excited about AI in medical education. And to be clear, I'm both. I actually, at the end of the piece, I, I this is very postmodern, I quote Jacques Derrida to bring up this idea of a pharmacon, because in ancient Greece, the same word for poison was the same word for medicine. So AI, I, I think, has both great potentials for meta and great fears. So the, the gist of the piece is that, and I think you're like this too, I, in the clinical reasoning community, I'd say there's kind of a split between people who take AI seriously and people who think it's a fad. I take AI very seriously. And, and I, the reason I take it seriously is, well, having used it myself, but also having studied it, right? Me and Zahir Kanji and Byron Crow ran all the New England Journal CPCs through it. And it actually does make diagnoses very well. And I'm running or helping to run a number of randomized control trials. And it, it truly, it's not perfect, but it truly can do what what we, not what we being me, but what people purported to, it cannot replace a doctor right now, but it truly can show like remarkable insights into, you know, the ways that we understand how how humans think. So my reason for writing this piece is that I was very frustrated and scared because I saw really the discourse going two ways. And one way was just ignoring AI. Medical educators saying, I don't I don't know what this is. I, I This is probably nothing. It's, it's hype from the tech community. Everyone was excited about blockchains and none of that has come to pass. This is just yet another tech pro hype thing. And then on the other side, I saw people, I guess, taking AI seriously, but focusing really on short-term and very real challenges such as hallucinations, such as the propensity to make up information, very big deal in medicine, such as, as bias in the training data, right? And we were talking about the yeah, global health medical education. Well, LLMs are largely trained on data from well, a single high-income country or high-income countries, a single language, English. I, that's not true. They have it there, but that the majority is English. And they reflect a lot of the same biases that we have, including racial and sex biases. So very real problems. But I saw I saw the focus either being dismissal or focusing on the very, you know, these very immediate issues. And as a as a historian and as some as someone very interested in and in, you know what it takes to train the medical mind. I was a little bit more worried about, I don't want to say long-term, but the medium-term views or the medium-term effects on medical education. And a lot of this was compounded by talking to my own medical students about how they were using LLMs already. And so the the gist of, of my worry is this, which is that medical education is, you'll agree with this, not perfect. In fact, it's imperfect in very many ways. And it's hampered by tradition. But we still have a pretty decent sense of how to train good doctors or how to train doctors. And a lot of it is, you know, strip away the lectures and stuff. A lot of it is practice. It's supervised practice. Like that's what residency is. That's what the clinical wards is. It's seeing patients over and over again, building up mental models of diseases and patients. We call those illness scripts or we call those schema, depending on exactly what mental tasks we're doing. And then like training when we switch to other mental heuristics and then getting feedback over time, right? That That's the apprentice, the cognitive apprenticeship model in a nutshell. Now, LLMs, it's very different than, I'd say, maybe the most recent technological innovation that threatened. This is the EHR, but very, very unique. Actually, give an ability to offset or to, to take a load off some of those mental processes, right? So their medical students are going to be using, or still right now, they're using LLMs from day one of medical school to help not just like facts, not just like how you would use Google to get a fact, but to use reasoning processes to make diagnoses to help them work through their cases. In some ways, this is very good. I, I spoke with one medical student 
who is uh, actually like us, a non-traditional applicant and had a lot of imposter syndrome. And before his PBLs, he was treating ChatGPT as a tutor, giving you know pieces of the PBL and getting feedback and asking questions. So there are some very, very positive things about this also. But we're now dealing with medical students from a very early age offloading some of these cognitive processes. And we're these are like circa 2023 LLMs, not even 20, GPT-4 came out in February. So I can only imagine that these things are going to improve over time. And even with GPT-4, we see data about using embeddings from different, like they will continue to improve. And medical education needs to start to grapple with what does it mean for, for med ed when a lot of these cognitive processes that medical education is designed to train when they get offloaded to a machine and students get used to offloading it to a machine. And at some point, I'm pretty certain that the machine will actually do better than what's up here. I don't think that point is right now, but, and, and I just don't see our field. And I, I'd be curious if you do, but I don't see our field prepared at all to grapple with that. Yes. I a hundred percent agree with most, if not all of that. I think, you know, one of the, the questions I've been grappling with, and I'm sure I'm sure you are as well, is is how do you and you, you start talking about this in the paper perspective too, is how do you teach this? Right? How do you teach this when, you know, every you know, the compounding is occurring on the order of days and weeks, months, let alone years. I mean, because you know, a decade ago when we were starting osmosis, we were trying to get you know, hidden curriculum, flipped classroom, multimedia learning, spaced repetition, these concepts that many of us had been around for a long time into the vernacular among faculty. And now, you know, fortunately, because of what academic medical education has done, but also private companies like Osmosis and many others, it's pretty much well accepted. You know, a lot of schools agree that medical education will be more efficient. Why are we doing these 60-minute boring lectures? Let's turn them into six-minute flipped classrooms with PBLs. So we're happy about that. But those still took years to, you know, compounded in years, as opposed to now, which is like weeks and months. How do you make a course to teach faculty about AI in medical education or, or get students who, you know, to, to, to start experimenting with it in a way that doesn't get them kicked out? Yeah, and that's a great. And I, I should say some of those papers, like one of my the, the 60 minute lecture papers from the 1970s to give you an idea on how how long it takes for some of these things to disseminate. We still have 60 minute lectures here at Beth Israel. So. It hasn't gone away. I can tell. So there's no, there's no, there is no guidebook, right? We're building the airplane while it, while it's flying. And I don't know that we have the luxury to wait and see, given that our students are using this right now. I can tell you what I'm doing and what our residents are doing. Our residents have been like, got like they're great and they've actually founded an interest group and now they have like four different tracks in it they have a curriculum in artificial intelligence and in, in four different domains that goes across the year and they've created an academic medicine half day for every single resident in our program who is going to spend an entire half day grappling with artificial intelligence and, and what it means for the future of their careers at the same time me and zahir kanji and Byron Crow have started to integrate or have integrated LLMs into our clinical reasoning conferences. And we do, we actually do adult learning theory. We do like think pair shares. We do a lot of these informed by a lot of adult learning theory to get the residents to actually interact with it in a supervised setting and also a HIPAA compliant manner, and then have discussions about how, how they can use these technologies and, and what it means. We had one just a couple of weeks ago. So that's what we're doing. And like, again, do I know that it's the right thing to do? No, there's no, there's no guidebook for this. And I'm very curious. I, you know, this is, I hope that med Twitter sticks around because a lot of this is happening siloed at individual institutions. And I hope that we all talk about it and over the next, you know, 
months to a couple years, come up with a standard way of doing it. But things are changing so fast that what works in 2023 probably will not work in 2025. Yeah, no, totally. And and one, I mean, oftentimes we borrow things in medical education that have been around in, in other other tech areas, so media tech or fintech. I mean, I look, you know, a lot of creativity and innovation is just borrowing ideas from other fields and combining them, not, not coming up with original thoughts. One of the things that kind of I, I've been grappling and thinking a lot about is, again, what what is the role of the faculty, the med student, the patient, or the practicing clinician? And so, you know, you talk about meta Twitter. I'm, I'm wondering when the first like fake or, or not fake, but, you know, AI agent faculty member is going to be around who's contributing to the discussion or dialogue, but actually just totally, totally wasn't wasn't a real person. But um, maybe they are already and we just don't know. I mean, we know influencers, because the, the money's not there as much, but there are AI influencers already that are raking in millions, if not tens of millions. And that's changing the role of like, do we need humans if like you have virtual avatars and, you know, with great voice synthesis and they, you know, can appear exactly how they want to appear. So everyone has their own personal tutor, kind of what Sal Khan talked about with the Conmigo app. Yeah, I was going to say, theoretically, with an AI agent, you could have a personal tutor who, I mean, one of the, this is getting to the exciting things. Like, if you talk about evaluation, this has been the way that we evaluate people in medical school. We know that it's not good. We just, we, we have good ways that are incredibly labor intensive, but like the step exams and standardized testing, we know they're not good. It's just what we have. So LLMs may... I think likely will give us an ability to give more meaningful longitudinal evaluations. Of course, then you take it to the next step and you're like, well, if it can evaluate also and it can teach, can you not combine those in, in an agent and just have your personal duty? But th this is, I'm not a, I'm not a tech person. I'm a, his, I'm a historian and an educator. So I have no idea the feasibility of that. I mean, history, you know, I'm sure you, you like that quote too, of like history doesn't, doesn't repeat itself, but it sure as hell rhymes. I forgot who said that. I don't know who said, I think it's, I think it's a pro apocryphally put onto many different people. <laughs> yeah. Like, sure, no, sure, it's true. Sure. Like yeah. what, what I truly think, and I'm going to sound like crazy on a podcast, but to get the way that we currently conceive about both disease and medical education came yeah, came at the beginning of the 19th century with this idea that disease lives in certain human bodies, in certain places in the body. And we like perform exams and do diagnostics and talk to people to figure out where that disease is. And then that leads to treatment, yada, yada, yada. And then because of that, our education is focused on the scientific bases of these of these investigations, right? That's why we learn biochemistry. That's that's why I've had to learn the Krebs cycle so many different times. But we may be entering a period where now we collect so much data and we've created machines that are able to analyze this data in a way that's now separate from human understanding, we may be entering a new episteme or like a new period of, of what the cognitive work of a doctor is. And again, that's an oversimplification because it's not like the cognitive work has been the same for 200 years. It, it has not, it has changed and it's changed in very real ways, but we might be entering that period. I've recently started reading the book Peter Atia. Like half the world seems to be doing his book Outlive. Also, a physician who's trained at Stanford and Hopkins, who who talks about the art and science of longevity. And you know, he talks about this concept of medicine 3.0, which is not not even preventative medicine, but proactive medicine. You know, where you don't don't wait for somebody to have a binary diagnosis if you're diabetic or not. But everyone everyone has some sort of you know insulin resistance at a certain you know over time, or everyone has some sort of atherosclerosis, and it's much more continuous than than binary. Than a binary, yeah, exactly. It's a much more nuanced nosology that a human could never do, but a computer could do. And with the proliferation of 
I mean, again, we we've this is not new, right? If you look at how we talk about renal disease, we talk about CKD now. That's not a pathologic diagnosis. It's like a function diagnosis. You track the GFR and what gets so I, I imagine and I don't think this is a stretch of the imagination that 20 years from now, a lot of diseases will have been redefined, or there may even be associations that we that there's not an ideologic relationship that humans understand. It's just there in the data, and we can see that we can see that this relationship exists. And once that happens, that's that's a new nosology. That's a new way of. But this is getting way that's way beyond what we're talking about right now. No, but that's where that's where ultimately where it is going. Because I've always made the point that like medical education is great. Like, it, what, but what makes it different than other forms of education? I, I summarize in three ways. One is it's it's too vast for anyone to know. Like somebody operating from first principles could understand a lot of physics or you know and and, and rederive that. Medicine's just too vast right now. Nobody can read all the papers. Number two, it's dynamic, right? Four years ago, we we're talking. Nobody knows what COVID nineteen is, and so new new diseases, new procedures, new drugs are always being developed or discovered. And number three is it's high stakes, right? If you forget how to, you know, conjugate a French verb, you may embarrass yourself in conversation, but you aren't going to, you know, hurt a patient's life or your your career. And so those are the things that make medical education different. But ultimately, the purpose of medical education, it's, it's you know, it's fun to learn about the body, but ultimately the purpose is patient outcomes. And what do you do when maybe AI can help disintermediate some, disintermediate some of that or do it better, whether it's the most thoughtful patient present AI psychiatrist that operates as an assistant or, or just independently via other medium to, to normal psychiatrists, or it's AI researchers that discover drug combinations that we would never otherwise think about. So I think ultimately, like everything, every discussion on AI and medical education is kind of, in my opinion, gets superseded by AI in medicine as well. Exactly, exactly. And and what the professional identity of a physician will be, what like what is the role of a physician in, in you know, we, we don't like to. Doctors don't like to have that conversation. <laughs> or, or it gets misinterpreted quite a bit. I remember a decade ago, I was at Future Med. I'm sure you've heard of this conference. And Vinod Kosla was speaking. And he that's where that's the conference where he said the very controversial thing at the time, which is in a decade, 80% of what doctors do will be replaced. He was a bit overly optimistic about that, but also was widely misrepresented as 80% of doctors won't be needed. Obviously, we keep changing what, what clinicians do. So here's a personal question. As you know, I'm, I'm a third-year med student right now. Say you're my attending, I'm on a rotation with you, and we sit down, and, we, and, and you're giving me advice on residency, on my future. What type of advice would you give me, especially given that AI, you know, GPT-5 or 6 or 7 or 8, whatever, will be better at diagnosing than I could ever be? So I think that what, what I... What I would say, because I don't know the future, right? I can only be informed. I'm like, you know, you and I are both like, it's like 1770. (laughs) We're still learning about all the blockages that that cause thesis. And this guy named Bishad is about to blow everything up. We have no way to repair. So what I would say is that, I again, just like Dr. Kozla said, it's not that doctors themselves are going to be replaced. It's that a lot of the cognitive work it is going to be offloaded and different professions will be affected differently. And I think it's so hard to, to have a crystal ball and look. So go, I, I would say go into what you're interested in, be curious, be really curious at how you can engage with this future. And I, I think that probably there will continue to be roles for humans in the, in the medium to long term. 
but I don't have an answer, right? I don't, I don't know. Should I go and should I match into radiology or not? <laughs> Maybe yes, but uh, intervention, interventional radiology is always going to have a place in our system until robotics is like. Do you want to do rads? Rads is a great job. I don't want to do rads, but <laughs> but but inter- rad onc or interventional rads are interesting. But yeah, anything procedural because that was one of the mo- you know. One of the realizations I think a lot of societies had over the past year since ChatGPT came out was that maybe knowledge workers, a lot of what we do as knowledge workers will be replaced before, you know, traditionally blue collar workers, right? Like the the blue collar trauma surgeons who may be listening to this or future trauma surgeons, I think are safe for quite a while. Yeah, well, it gives an idea. So what I would say is that if you look at the cognitive work of, of most physicians right now, relatively small amount of it is like these really tough diagnostic decisions. A lot of it is fairly humdrum, communicating, organizing, things that people still do pretty well right now. But honestly, we don't really train people for in medical school, right? We don't really, we we maybe talk about communica- communication skills, but we don't really. So it's pro- like, even if a lot of those so I'm less worried about the job itself. I'm more worried about our professional identity, at least in my field in internal medicine. We pride ourselves so much on our ability to make diagnoses. And a lot of our teaching is around that. And that, like the ability to make diagnoses, I actually do think that in the reasonably near future, computers will be able to do that better than humans. I, I'll still have a job. I'm not worried about not having a job. But what does that mean for us as doctors if something that we pride ourselves, like everyone's like, oh, I hate filling out all that paperwork. Real, realistically, that's most of the job. <laughs> so yeah, what, I, I don't know what that means for our physician and what our self-conception when we're no longer doing that. So, you know, one piece of advice you've given us twice now is just getting curious or staying curious. Where do you get your information from? If you can walk us through how you kind of scratch that curiosity itch. Are there books you're reading or have found very influential? Are there newsletters you subscribe to? You know, basically, so our, our audience of students and faculty or professionals can keep apprised or abreast in similar ways that you are. Oh, it's so depressing. It's Twitter or X. I read a lot of preprints and I'm in a lot of, I mean, it's finding a community of people and participating in that community. So I talk to a lot of nerdy clinical reasoning people, a lot of nerdy diagnostic people, and we share papers back and forth. And that's honestly, that's where I'm exposed to to most things rather than a specific book or a specific podcast. I'll put a plug in since we're talking about clinical reasoning to, you know, to, to your research letter in June in JAMA about, you know, the title is Accuracy of a Generative Artificial Intelligence Model in a Complex Diagnostic Challenge, which I think has informed part of even this conversation. You know, what what are some of the, you know, can you give us a preview of some of the things your lab is, or your group is working on right now? Yeah, yeah. So, so I am, so I, I need to be very explicitly clear, especially if there are like AI experts listening. I am not a AI expert. I'm a historian and I study how people think, clinical reasoning. So what we're doing is we're designing experiments that are are informed by the way that humans think. And we're studying humans against a large language model. So for example, giving them cases in aliquots and sections and asking both humans and the large language model to to solve it. And then we're using a, a lot of methods that we've used to evaluate humans in a blinded fashion to see who does better. And then the more exciting studies were were prospectively actually looking how human cognition has changed when humans use an LLM versus the standard of care. So uh, starting to really, because like for the, for the near term, it's going to be used as, as decision support, right? Humans are going to use it, or it's going to be running on top of what humans are doing. And there's some interesting like economics, like behavioral economics data out here. I, I'm sure you saw the chest X-ray piece where the even though the AI did better, and I 
performed by itself better than the radiologists in reading chest x-rays. It made the radiologists perform worse. And then there's some there's some interesting data in, in the in non-medical fields about how people with different training levels will have different increases or even decreases in their performance when using an LLM. So I think there's a lot of interesting questions out there about what what does it mean for a human to work with these tools? And that's that's what I'm focusing on right now. That's that's really good nuance for sure. And and then again, it has been a theme in, in ever since we made our first technology, you know, human technology interactions and how do you how do you you know, EMRs are obviously the big scapegoat of how much worse they've made bedside manner or, you know, the actual profession leading to burnout or moral injury, or at least contributing to that documentation has. So it'll be interesting. Hopefully this is one of those things that reverses the course and helps, you know patient helps clinicians connect better with their patients because they don't have to, you know, transcribe every note or, or be so focused on the computer ICD 10 codes. Yeah. There's, there's a, there's a best case scenario out there. That's like the Star Trek future, right? Where we're all like on the enterprise with bones and, and technology just works to enhance the human doctor relationship. There's also a worst case scenario, which I think is when AI would be used just to optimize finances of a hospital in a way that crowds out and snuffs out what's left of the human experience. So I think that's what I'm so motivated for is that, they, like I said in the beginning, a pharmacon, there really is a way that these technologies could dramatically improve what it means to be a patient and hopefully what it means to be a physician. But the same technologies could also be used to make things worse. Yeah, totally. Like fire in general is the Promethean future. The fire, yeah. Fire is the ultimate pharma. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to be respectful of your time. So I only had two other questions for you for now. The, the first is, you know, zooming out of AI and medicine, let's go just AI in general. Another historian I, I like to follow and, you know, has been very influential to many of us is Yuval Noah Harari and, you know, some of the things he's been warning the world about AI, AGI, what makes AI as a technology different than, you know, computers or any other type of technology like nuclear weapons. You know, where, what are your kind of thoughts just Again, like not asking you to prognostic the future, but what do you think about AGI and this potential future beyond medicine? I so Shiv, I, I should ask you what you think. This is an area in which I'm agnostic. I truly, it's one of those, you know, on Twitter how everybody or X how everyone's talking about LK99 and all the excitement about a room temperature. Well, I have no way to parse out what <laughs> what I should think about that. And that's how I feel about AGI. I, I don't have a I don't have a sense. I truly can't answer the question. I think that's great. I'm glad that you did not choose to, because I think that's also something that because we're on X or Twitter, or, you know, have these conversations, I think everyone feels like they need to have an opinion on something. And that's partly contributed to to the world we live in today. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know a lot about how the human mind works. I know a reasonable about about medical education. I don't know anything about AGI. I definitely don't know anything about room temperature superconductors. <laughs> I feel like I know a lot more about both those things than I ever thought I would. Yeah, I know more than I did uh, a couple weeks ago, but... <laughs> But the other piece is because, you know, you and I are both obviously on social media like this is how few of our colleagues, I, I don't know if you find this, but how few of whether it's our colleagues or just the general public actually know or pay attention, it very much feels like an echo chamber in some ways. Like, do you, do you feel this at all? Like, or, or is it pretty much part of the zeitgeist that, you know, the BIDMC faculty that you, everyone's talking about AI at this point or, you know. No, one of the reasons, actually, for anyone who wants to shock their own faculty into waking up, so we in April held a CPC where we had, this is very early on, right? this is just like a few weeks after GPT 4.0 was released, we had a case conference 
where we had GPT-4 actually as a discussant up there, up there alongside with humans. And we had, you know, took questions, justified this diagnosis, interacted with the other discussants. I would have done it very differently now because I have a lot more experience. But the purpose and the reason we did that was to show the path, to shock people out of complacency, to show the power of these tools. And I still think, I, I mean, what, it's August now. So I think a lot more people have had some experience or have read about it and are, are realizing the impact. But there's honestly ChatGPT, like the UI, it's so easy to use. I, I don't know why more people aren't just experimenting with it, but I think people need these education, this education, and they need to, they need to wake up because these things really are powerful and they're going to change the way that we practice. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I'm right there next to you, you know, trying to, trying to get as many people educated about this stuff. My last question for you is, is there anything else you want our audience to know about you, about the work you're doing, about AI or history, medical history, whatever? Open, open, open mic for you. Oh, an open mic for me. That Well, that's dangerous. I did not think about this ahead of time. Is there anything? I'll, I'll try to end on a, on a positive note. If being a historian has taught me one thing, it's there, there is the being a physician as a profession. Yes, it has changed a lot, but there are certain fundamental things that are very similar, both cross-culturally and over a, a long period of history. A lot of that has to do with the relationship that physicians or healers have with their patients. So being optimistic, AI may actually be a tool to that we can use as physicians to enhance enhance like that really important relationship. And like the actual day-to-day -day work of a physician has changed dramatically. And we shouldn't necessarily be scared of change if that's what helps us take better care of our patients. And I think that especially for medical students coming up, I, it is it, it is time to be open-minded about what our, our professional identity is, what it means to be a physician. I do not think that we can have the flexionary in this really 20th century view of the physician as the top of the ivory tower, looking down, giving pronouncements, being the expert in all things. And we have to start reconceiving the physician as acting in a multidisciplinary fashion, including working with artificial intelligence, but also reaching outside our field. Like you talked about getting educational innovations from FinTech. Well, there's many other fields out there that I think we need to embrace and take the wisdom from and remember like what are what are the things that make a physician the physician and it is that relationship with our patient and have that as our north star as things are dramatically changing around us i love that that's a that's a hopeful note and an important note to end on so adam i'd like to thank you for taking the time to be with us on the raise line podcast and more importantly for the work that you're doing to educate so many people about this important topic i'm looking forward to reading your upcoming articles and, and sharing them widely at osmosis and beyond well, thanks, Shiv. And you guys are doing great work. Like I said, I read your article in Academic Medicine on osmosis in global health education years ago. It was a big inspiration for what digital education can do. Well, thank you so much. Definitely been the beneficiary of working with so many awesome, talented, passionate educators like yourself over these years. So with that, I'd like to thank our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to raise line and strengthen our healthcare system. We're all in this together. Take care. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. Mm -hmm.